becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger stood around a crowd. It's a dream that you to make real. Passing note of the songs. It's a fun sound to make. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally. All right. Oh. And that was loud. That was loud. Yeah. I gotta turn you down. Don't turn me down. You trying to censor me? Everyone's always trying to say you're so dynamic. <laughs> always peeking out that mic. Yeah, always peeking. We that's why we call you Mike Always Peeking. That's <laughs> uh, okay. That's <laughs> well, podcast. I, I think I can go with it. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. All right. Yeah. Episode forty three. Forty three. School is back in session. Man. Yeah. Well you're you're just not getting into it. I yeah, mean, you started a couple weeks ago. Yeah three or four weeks ago. Yeah. I, I just need to sigh like a thousand times. <laughs> I think, I, I think you need to share with your, uh, with, with your first week of school. That's, that was, uh, that was painful. Well, we're only two <laughs> days in and it has been really painful. <laughs> like in ways I don't even know how to go into. I mean, for one thing, I don't know how other school systems are doing with this, but AISD's organizational um, skills for getting students into remote online learning environments is like, I feel bad saying it this strongly, but I can't imagine it being any worse. (laughs) (laughs) Like they've exceeded the expectations of my imagination for how badly this could go. Oh, that's painful. (laughs) It is. It's very painful. And it's hard for me. And I'm an adult that works in technology and they're expecting, you know, my nine year old to figure this out or maybe they're not, maybe they're expecting me to figure it out, but it's been hard because I'm single parent also working full time at the same time. I have my own zoom calls to be on. And so sorting through that. So three kids each with five zoom calls a day, plus, you know, the five or six or eight that I've got. It's just been a mess around here. <laughs> it's been very stressful. <laughs> well, I can't even imagine like you're talking about like, you know, just technology. It's like you are in tech. Yeah. And you were having a hard time getting your son's iPad, which was our computer on, you know, the internet. Yeah. And it's like, you're in tech, you right. know, these things. And it's like, I can't imagine like other parents that don't know those things. When I was thinking about it, I was, well, I was wondering if I had, or somebody had, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic saw far enough into the future to say, somebody's going to need some intuitive software for getting remote learning going. Mm -hmm. And you just like designed it and built it the way Apple would build something. Yeah. Would they have even used it? Probably not. It'd probably been too expensive. Lucas, uh, whining in there. Yeah, it would have been too expensive. And it seems to me like, whatever software they were using, which is a a collection of disparate things, like maybe 10 or 15 different websites that you've got to be navigating to get a cohesive idea of what's going on, which is already crazy. And that's what they were using in March. Like when they first 
went to remote learning, you know, mm-hmm. with no heads up, no one knew we were going to have to do this. That's what they had. Here we are seven months later. It's the same thing. Nothing's changed. Damn. So it's been rough. Um, <clears throat> you think we'd, we'd be past that by now, like just technology. But again, it's like anytime government <laughs> is involved or like state type stuff. I gotta let him out. Yeah, yeah go for I it. I don't know what's going on with him. Microsoft Teams works pretty good, you know? I mean, it's clunky, but it's it's doable. Right. Um, and there's a few things, that, but they, but it's from Teams that, that links to whatever website that is, you know? So that's, it's, it's kind of helpful in that way. I mean, it's right. still, again, clunky, but uh, it works, you know? Yeah. I suppose they could have bought a license for that, but it would have been expensive. Yeah. So yeah, I'm exhausted. We'll see how how this goes. <laughs> I might be. I, I mean, I feel like my head is. It's, I think it's the task switching that's so difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm I'm trying to join a work meeting, and then I've got kids coming in, showing me their meeting, asking me for help, either for like it's not connecting, or they can't hear, or they lost the window where the tab go. Or the teacher's telling me to do something. I have no idea what this means. And it's not just like teachers asking me to do uh, division. I don't know how to do division. It's like the teacher has, is telling me to go to this page and I have no idea where that page is. Mm-hmm. And then I've got to spend 15 minutes trying to figure out where the page is because <laughs> it's not obvious at all. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, and then, you know, to another kid who his internet's too slow to connect to the thing or, and then back to my own work and the task switching all day long. is just so exhausting. Like yeah. when you got here tonight, <laughs> I feel like you said hello, and I was like, I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, what, what is the proper response like to a little hello? Blank, like glass-eyed yeah. <laughs> look on your face. I was like, Are, are we doing this tonight? What are, <laughs> what's What's on our agenda? Are we just going to do porch and whiskey? <laughs> Which will probably could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hope the rest of you out there are making it through. Yeah. This uh, this challenging time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's I mean that's that's one thing that you were you were bringing up. Uh, you you just gave me the article about the adverse effects of the COVID, you know, compared mm. to you know actual like COVID um, related or COVID deaths or infections or whatever it might be. And, yeah, um, just whether it be suicides or you know family stuff. Oh, that's something that's been. I also have kind of noticed over the last few weeks. I don't know. Sometimes it is just like when you, when you hear something, all of a sudden you're attuned to it a lot more too, but it's like, I feel like, like relationships are ending, you know, if there's a few high profile people that Allison mm-hmm. follows that are going through divorces and it's like, you know, and some of that has to do with like, you know, whenever couples fall different lines on what the whole, you know, uh, critical theory stuff and racial, uh, critical, critical racial theory. And yeah, and some of or the even how to handle the pandemic mm-hmm, or handle the pandemic. Right. Yeah. The different stresses that go into that. And it's like, well, let's back up. You mentioned that study that oh, was, yeah. that was really interesting. And I haven't read deeply into this, so I don't, I don't have a ton to say about it, but I think the premise alone is thought provoking enough to be worth talking about, mm-hmm. which is, um, there was a study that came out that looked at, um, 
So they said, we have drawn upon existing economic studies on the health effects of unemployment to calculate an estimate of how many years of life will have been lost due to the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And compared that against an estimate of how many years of life have been saved by the lockdowns. So the idea being that if we hadn't, so, so that lockdowns presumably are saving some number of life, uh, years of life. Mm-hmm. So if, if somebody was, let's say, 70 and we didn't lock down and they got COVID and died, but we did lock down and they didn't get COVID and didn't die of COVID and lived to 85, mm-hmm. then the lockdown will have saved 15 years of life um, for that person. Um, I don't know a ton about the other side of it, which is looking at the health effects of unemployment, but I do think that it has something to do with what you were talking about. Like suicide goes up, um, drug and alcohol abuse goes up, uh, health probably goes down. Um, so there, there, you can calculate, I assume, or so they're saying years of life lost to this effect. And what they found is that we are losing 10 times as many life years due to the lockdowns than we are saving Hmm. from COVID. That's pretty astounding. It is pretty astounding. I mean, cause I mean, just even you and I were from, you know, probably into June, whenever, uh, just started kind of asking more questions, really May, but June specifically asking more questions around this and trying to find the information. A lot of that seems intuitive, you know, as far as, you know, you, people like, was it 30 million people lost their jobs? Um, I, I think mean, it might've been more than that up that. in the forties. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was up 16%. No, now we're down to, I think 10 or 8%, I guess. Unemployment. Unemployment. Yeah. 10 or 12. Um, what were we at? Like 14% or something? Yeah. It was like 14 or 16%. It was yeah. something, something really high. So that's good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is good news. I think again, people are starting to hire again. Uh, uh, Maybe we can get into that stuff a little bit, a little bit later. But I mean, I, I think the just the effects of what this is doing to us socially, also, yeah, um, yeah, it's just really hard to say. And again, I don't, I don't want to uh, point fingers or say like, you know, we should have done this because I mean, we just didn't know. You know, I mean, at first we were like, you know, like two million people are going to die this year from COVID. You know. And nobody knew. And, you know, it could have turned out that way. Right. We just didn't know. And, uh, I feel like we're getting to that place where we are starting to see, like, what effects COVID had versus all the other right. stuff, too. So, right. I mean, it does feel somehow too early. Like, as I was saying that, you know, the lockdowns seem to be losing 10 times as many li- years of life as they're mm-hmm. saving we should do something about that. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of life lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but it almost feels too early to be talking that way. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think culturally we're ready for a shift to start talking about the damage we're doing. We're too focused on the damage that we're avoiding. Yeah. At some point we've got to look at the damage we're doing mm-hmm. and start making some trade-offs and some risk mitigations. Yeah. It seems like that's happening. And I think just, in general, I mean, you know, we kind of talked about this. On, I think it was, was our last podcast, or the one before we kind of got into the COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't remember which one. It seems like people are starting to kind of a little bit, kind of release a little bit of their 
stinginess in this area. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I have. Mm-hmm. I, w- I went out of town this weekend. I know. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it did feel pretty crazy. It felt Mm -hmm. like going against the grain of um, what I've been doing for months Mm -hmm. and months for sure. Um, So I went down to the coast with the intention of going to the beach and swimming, and that seemed safe enough. Ended up in a little town called Kima, which is about halfway between Houston and Galveston. And man, they don't do COVID there. <laughs> COVID does not exist. In it does Kima. not exist in Kima. Everybody moved to Kima. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was wild. I mean, there was a few people here and there wearing masks, but that little town was rocking. Mm-hmm. Um, bars, restaurants, amusement park there, a boardwalk there, uh, hmm. all of it open, all wow. of it packed. It felt really uncomfortable, but also really refreshing. Wow. Like, Oh, life, life is still happening. Wow. It makes me get uncomfortable. Just think, I mean, I'm, I'm not such a, a crazy person on this, but yeah. that. Yeah. I, I did not expect it to be that way. Mm-hmm. I was, I was thinking, well, leaving and going somewhere else, that's kind of pushing my risk boundary. And then I got there and it was like, Oh, there's no more boundary. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at that point, it's like you either kind of go with it or get back in your car and leave. And so I, kind of went with it yeah. and used my sort of normal, um, my normal risk settings in terms mm. of, you know, being around people. Yeah. And for the most part, I wasn't around people and I think I was safe and it was fine, but yeah. just seeing, seeing regular life happening totally. felt very strange. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I think cause I, uh, places like Austin will have a harder time I think transit making that transition. Yeah. Let's just say say the vaccine is wonderful and great. Uh, I I think even that would places like Austin were probably a little bit more in a lockdown situation, Mm -hmm. less than others, but like, um, it'll just take more time to have that recovery. Like we're chemo. There's like, wait, we're done with this. So we were done with this a long time ago, (laughs) you know? So again, these are all the things like I'm so curious about like a year or two years from now, Mm -hmm to go back and look and like, I mean, it could be where, you know, you know, those people were not doing the right thing, you yeah. know, or it could, we could look back and it's like, uh, I wish I was living there. Right. <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. It's too early to know. Maybe mm-hmm. a- another really wonderful thing. <clears throat> I feel like we've spent a couple of time, a couple of episodes talking about just being overloaded by input mm. and feeling someone insane trying to stay up to date. I basically didn't look at my phone for three days. Yeah. It was wonderful. (laughs) And I lost my Apple watch recently, Mm -hmm. uh, on a water slide. (laughs) And, uh, so I was getting basically no notifications. And I, I think the second day I woke up and I was like, huh, I have no idea what crazy shit went on in the world yesterday. I don't even know. I only know what happened to me and the people I'm with. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't experienced that in months. I think it was really, uh, it was healthy. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the conservative people I listen to is Shapiro and he always talks about like on Friday, he'll say, don't burn the nation down. He's like, guys, come on. I just said, <laughs> and then Monday. every Monday he's like, you went and did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, he's Jewish. And so Saturday has Sabbath. So no, uh, Uh-oh. no electronics or anything I like thought that. About that. So, uh, which is such a, such a healthy thing. You think about those, um, things that are built into religions, like such as Jew, Judaism, you know, it's like having a Saturday where you do not 
connect, you know, yeah. um, just makes so much sense. It's like, well, you could do it yourself with that. I was like, I don't know. It's you, having those things built into your, and everybody does it in your community, you know? Yeah. I do feel like you kind of need the, <clears throat> the, the structure of authority to submit to in order to really pull that off. Mm-hmm. I think you could probably do it for a period of time, but as yeah. a lifelong practice, you, you need a larger structure within it, within which to operate. I think totally. I mean, with the mask type stuff, it's like, I'm not really into wearing masks, but I do it because that's the culture I live in. And right. it's like, you know, uh, and I understand it too, but it's like, it's not, I'm not really like, I'm not not really, I'm I'm kind of like, yes, and this will end. And some people are like, no, this is the new normal. I'm like, no, this will end. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. I'm not not accepting this as a permanent part of our (laughs) reality. I'm sorry. (laughs) I will wear my mask and I will do the things, but. (laughs) I do wonder if it is going to be a normal part of our reality, if if we're going to be like Japan. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe people will stop, some people will stop wearing them, but most of the people or a large a large percentage of the people will keep doing it. Yeah. I think that's probably the way it's going to go for the foreseeable future. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Which is fine. Yeah. I think people should, I mean, honestly, I think people should do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. I think if they want to wear masks, they should. Yeah. We do need to get to a period of time where if I don't feel like I'm at risk Mm -hmm. and I'm not putting you at risk, then it should be socially acceptable for me to not wear it. Yeah. I hope we can get to that place. Totally. That's my hope too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. So, um, you want to talk for a second about this Oscar thing? Yeah. I don't know if I can talk about it very intelligently, but it's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't think we need to talk about it intelligently. I I want to make a a bigger point. So, Mm -hmm. um, I don't have it pulled up the, the, I guess the Academy. Mm -hmm. So the Academy, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. The Academy (laughs) is who, performs judges Uh the movies for the Oscars. And so they've come out and said that in order to be eligible for best picture, you have to meet two of four, at least two of four requirements. And I don't know what all four of them are, but I know that at least two of them are quotas for essentially intersectional points on your actors. Mm Mm-hmm. So you need to have this many people of this color, this many people of this gender, this many people of this sexual list of marginalized groups, mm-hmm. uh, sexual orientation, uh, LGBTQIA plus plus. Yeah, I thought there was a P in there. Possibly. Um, I, and I felt very dismayed by this. Hmm. Which part? Um, I didn't spend enough time thinking about this ahead of time. So I'm going to work it. Let's work it out in real time. Okay. I think I felt that that means grace guys. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Well, we're talking about art here. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's one thing to say. So I was thinking about the creative process. So this is what dismayed me. What is this going to do to the creative process? If, if we are saying that the best movies that get made, the best movie of the year must include these quotas of people. Um, 
what does that do to creativity? And I, and I'm a big fan of limitations in creativity. I think that they're necessary and and really helpful to the creative process. Mm-hmm. But limitations are much different than requirements. Mm-hmm. I think another way to say that is it's one thing to say this is not welcome and it's a completely other thing to say this is required. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about um, the radio. So it's one thing for the radio to say we are not going to play any songs that contain this language. It's an, it's also similar thing for um, you know, maybe the Oscars to say, uh, you know what, pornography is not part of what we celebrate here. Um, so those are limitations. Those are taking things off the table. It's like, if I want to be creative in this area, I'm not allowed to use these particular sets of tools. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be uh, really good for creativity. But if you were to say, we're not going to play any song on the radio which does not explicitly make commentary about the 2020 election. Hmm. Now you are compelling the creative process to be about something or, or to be something in particular mm-hmm. rather than anything except something else. So the first situation, if, if the creative process is allowed to be anything except for something, then it can still be anything. I mean, you still have limitless opportunities, mm-hmm. but when you then shackle requirements of what it must be onto it, mm. <clears throat> Now you are, have lost creativity. Hmm. Um, and I think this is what that's doing. This is saying, <clears throat> in order to be eligible to make the best movie of the year, you have to include these elements. And <clears throat> this is really bad news for creativity and, and for the arts, especially if this theme continues to spread into more and more arenas. And I think it's likely that it will because this is becoming a very mainstream position. So I worry about the state of the arts. And I think I worry about it because we really, really need the arts. We really, really need the arts to be able to understand the world around us, to make sense of it, to process it, to learn from it, to extract morals out of the uncertainty of life. And movies are one of the biggest ways we do that in this culture. And if we are putting these requirements on movies, really any sort of compelled content requirements at all, mm-hmm. then we're limiting our creative filmmakers ability to bring us that, that expression and interpretation and moral extraction that we just absolutely and desperately need, especially in a time that is so confusing and chaotic and shifting as quickly as this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, well, is there, is there a difference between like, so you have a, a five for five, five songs in five days. So there's a limitation on that, but there's not requirements. Is that, would that be different from this? Like, you know, you do those like a, writes five songs in five days. Mm-hmm. There's like that limitation right. there. Right. But in that instance, they're not compelling you to write about a certain thing. Right. So, but what if, it, but then there's those creative process like, okay, hey, we're going to write about windows. So everybody write around the idea of windows. And that's fantastic practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to say uh, gotcha. that's that right. 
your your short story will not be considered for publication unless it is about Windows. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what about all of the other wonderful things that people want to write about? Yeah, unless you're doing that for like like I am the I am the um, uh, I'm the client, and I say, hey, I want you to write a story about Windows. And you can either accept that job or mm-hmm. you can not accept that job. Right. But you have that, it's like you have that, that freedom to accept. But you're, when you're talking about a, a global Academy Awards, you know, it's like that's supposed to be representative of the arts. And of the arts. The best. Uh, the best of the best of the mm-hmm. arts. And yeah. you start putting those qualifications around that. Yeah. I mean, if you want to find the best of the arts, you have to look at all the art. Mm-hmm. You can't say, I'm going to look at all the art, except art that doesn't include what I think it should include. Mm -hmm. Again, that's much different than saying, I'm categorically ignoring or putting off the table something like pornography. Mm -hmm. That's a much different thing to say than to say, I'm putting off the table that doesn't include what I think it should include. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets a little bit... I see. I see the difference, but at the same time, I. I mean, it almost gets into the Peterson's like idea of compelled speech versus yes, absolutely. You know, you you must use this speech rather than, uh, you know, don't use this speech, right? Or don't say this thing. Yeah, it's a much different thing. Mm -hmm. You must rather than don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like don't yell fire in a crowded building, you know? Right. Where if you come into a crowded building, you have to yell booga, booga, booga. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's a great thing. That's a great way to put it. It's uh-huh. like, well, there's a really good reason to restrict speech in certain areas, mm-hmm. such as don't say bomb on an airplane or mm-hmm. don't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Yeah. Um, like we should accept that limitation on our speech. Yeah. There are certain situations in which we should accept limitation, mm-hmm. but to require this people say something is a much different thing. Yeah. At that, that is the point at which you lose your freedom. And mm-hmm. I think you lose your freedom because part of being free is saying, no, I don't want to say that. I don't want to behave the, this particular way. It's fine for you to tell me that I can't behave a particular way, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's fine to tell me that I'm not allowed to uh, assault someone. You know, it's not fine for you to tell me that I have to behave some other particular way. There has to be some opportunity for me to be in a non-state to say, no, I'm not participating in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So. Well, I guess in that situation, you would just say like, hey, I'm not participating in the Oscars. Well, but this is the problem is that just like I said, you lose your freedom once speech is compelled. Mm hmm. In that same way, you lose creativity once once content is compelled, mm-hmm. and so this is going to affect the way that people make movies. And some people could say, "And it, mm-hmm. I'm not going to participate in this," so they're just I'm not going for best picture anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe they receive less funding or get funding another way, and maybe some other award ceremony starts up to counter this. You know, mm-hmm. it's possible. Yeah. I mean, I think you made the point that it sort of opens up the opportunity for like the punk punk rock of movies. Yeah. Um, but when you have our mainstream organizations that are at the forefront of much of our culture's mainstream artistic consumption, 
doing this, it is going to affect the things that we end up seeing. What's well, funny, I, more we're talking about this, I find it just more unfortunate. You know, like they are a company organization that determine their rules and they can determine whatever rules they want to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, fine. You know, that's great. It's just really sad that such a world-renowned and also people really admire the Oscars. I mean, it's gotten kind of funky over the years. <laughs> I don't really keep up with all this For stuff. For sure, yeah. But I, I don't really, I don't really, <clears throat> yeah, I just don't watch it as much. Um, but it's just unfortunate they're they're going to kind of have this sort of qualifications that are not really based on the art itself. And again, it's like, we're not, we're not, we're not advocating for like people being jerks and racist and you know, that kind of stuff, which is Mm -hmm. stupid to even have to say, but it's just more of like requiring all these, uh, somewhat arbitrary, you know, the color of someone's skin or race or, you know, well, like I find those are, those it. I are find aspects it, of somebody. That's not right. who somebody is. Well, I find it absolutely arbitrary. Yeah, because an individual's personal characteristics are largely irrelevant when they're acting. Yeah, because they are by definition playing someone that they're not. Mm-hmm. So it's a very arbitrary rule. Well, that gets into the whole thing of like someone who's not. Uh, handicapped or uh, challenged in some way, playing a challenged person, you know, that is that I think it's still a minority, but it's such a loud minority of people that, that kind of follow that, that idea. Uh, it just sounds ridiculous. It is. It's acting. You're playing somebody else. You're putting mm-hmm. yourself into somebody else's shoes and somebody else's life. Right. And it's like always, always. Yeah. And it's like, there's no actor that does not do that. And you could, pretty much get every actor in trouble. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, you're not a, a 67 year old. You're a 52 year old playing a 67 year old. Right. That's ageist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, right. You should have left that up to somebody who is 67. There's no end to that. Yeah. I mean, this is why it dismays me mm-hmm. because the, this direction that it's moving in ends in no more creative art being produced, mm-hmm. which, which incapacitates us as a culture to, essentially process the unknown sort of like Mm -hmm. to deal with the collective cultural shadow to use sort of a Jungian idea there. Yeah. Like we need the punk rock movie makers. I mean, we need the movie makers who bring us something that makes us feel something. Mm -hmm. And we feel things from the movies because it cuts against what we want or expect, Mm -hmm. you know, it surprises us. Something happens that we don't like. And then all of a sudden it's redeemed in a way that we couldn't have imagined. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the movie's job to make us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So to require that no one ever feel uncomfortable based upon their own personal attributes and characteristics as they feel like they relate to the fictional attributes, attributes and characteristics of the people they see on the screen. That's the death of the, of the medium. Mm -hmm. It's the death of the artistic form when taken to its ultimate conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I think that's our things. I I think that's where I I would hear someone argue uh, against that. I I don't, 
And again, I think that goes back to the Moat and Bailey thing <laughs> that we've been talking about. It's sort of like, you know, you have this sort of, uh, uh, kind of like what you were talking <clears throat> about is having the, uh, uh, oh, how do you say it? Like the extreme, the extreme of what that kind of leads to, but then just kind of argue, well, it's like, Hey, no, we just want to be more people included, more voices included, more right. voices that's, heard. That's a perfect example. And, and it's like, which most people are like, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want more voices and more people's ideas being expressed? Well, that's funny. That's exactly what I'm advocating for. Yeah. And I'm saying when you compel people to do something a certain way, then you don't get more voices. You get less voices. Yeah. Because you're specifically discluding voices that don't say what exactly what you want mm-hmm. them to say and behave in the exact way that you want them to behave. Well, I think of a bureaucracy. You know, it's like when you, when you start having all these things that you have to include, it's like the bureaucracy that goes into doing that. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like the creative process just kind of gets lost when you're trying to like meet all these criteria that, yeah. <laughs> that don't actually have to do anything with the content. You know? Um, was it apartheid in Brazil? Uh, South Africa. South Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was that? Um, Sugar Man. Did you see that documentary mm-hmm. about that guy? I think he's from South Africa. Or no. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm out of my, <laughs> out of my, my dad's here. But there was this story about, I guess, during that period of time, he, he had made this record in... Uh, let's say the seventies <laughs> and uh, it got really famous. Some like bootleg oh, copies yeah. got over there, but because it was this, it was apartheid. Um, they know people were sharing it underground, but it never got out of the area. And mm-hmm. he became essentially as big as Bob Dylan and the Beatles in this one area. But he ended up living in Minneapolis as a construction worker for 30 years and never knew that he was hugely famous in this one area. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, this is the extreme example of what happens when you tell people how they have to think and Mm -hmm. what they have to enjoy, what they are allowed to and not allowed to say and consume. That's tragic. That was really fascinating. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to the Moat and Bailey thing because we have talked about it before on the podcast, but I think it would be good to spend a couple of minutes discussing exactly what that is and giving some examples because it's helpful. It, it's sort of a, I find it to be something of a mind bending, uh, um, what, well, what is it? Well, I think uh, before we get into that, this is really useful to, to know. I mean, I'm guilty of this also. Um, so I mean, it, but it's, but I think really even just recognizing it in yourself when you do this, mm-hmm. as well as when other people are doing this to you, mm-hmm. because it, Whenever you, especially if you have uh, goodwill towards people mm, and right. are, are wanting to expect the best and that they're being honest with you, uh, sometimes the moat and Bailey can be really difficult to spot and, um, and not realizing that that's what's happening. Uh, and you'll actually agree to things that you don't really realize you're agreeing to. Right. Yes, Absolutely. So it's a it, it's if you look it up, Wikipedia says it's called the Moton Bailey fallacy, um, named after the Moton Bailey Castle, which is a style of castle in which you have sort of a, a large fortified castle in the center, and then outside of that, sort of a small village with a smaller wall um, surrounding it. And the idea is that 
the the moat, which is the outer area, um, is not very easy to de- to defend. It's easily overtaken. But the castle, the bailey itself, am I getting that right? That might be backwards. I think it's backwards. Yeah. The bailey is the area outside, mm-hmm. and it's and it's uh, pretty difficult to defend. But the moat, which is the it's the fortified castle, sort of up higher higher on a hill, mm-hmm. is is easy to defend. It's a, a a better position for defense. So the idea is that a moat and bailey fallacy um, is an argument that conflates two positions, uh, which are very similar. Um, and one is modest and easy to defend. And that's the moat. Um, and then one is much more controversial and much more difficult to offend. And that would be the Bailey. Mm-hmm. So these apply to these two sections of the, the castle. So an example is the statement, morality is socially constructed. Uh, in this ba- in this example, the moat is that our beliefs about right and wrong are socially constructed while the Bailey is that there is no such thing as right and wrong. So the, the controversial position that is difficult to defend is that there's no such thing as right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And the Bailey, uh, the easier to defend statement is that our beliefs about right and wrong are socially constructed. And so you can enter in an argument, you can go back and forth between these two, depending on how someone's responding. Mm-hmm. So if they're agreeing with you on the controversial statement, great. But if they start attacking that statement, then you retreat to the easier defensible statement and say, well, why are you attacking this statement? And it makes the person that you're talking to feel very disoriented because they're thinking, I'm not attacking that. I'm attacking this. I'm attacking mm-hmm. the other thing that you said. But you're using them interchangeably now, depending on what's good for you in the argument. Totally. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, the good and evil or uh, good and bad is, is really a good example because mm-hmm. it's easy to point out like how different cultures develop different ideas around what's good and bad and the, the socially constructed part of that, you know? Yeah. But then you start running into problems whenever you say, you know, uh, you know, what is justice? You know, is there, is is that really even a thing? So you start talking, you start going to the more extreme examples as far as like, you know, well, you know, if Hitler, if Hitler and the Nazis just, you know, believed that what they were doing was good, then it was okay. Like there is no real good or evil or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, no, that's, it's, well, if it's, if it's socially constructed, that doesn't really matter. They, they believe that within their area. And that also gets us into, uh, critical theory, you know, in a sense there too, because, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, uh, it's all, it's all a power struggle, you know, it's like, that's also another one of those sort of Moat and Bailey type things. It's yeah. sort of like, you know, who's like, it's easy to, oh no, I don't want to go there just yet. Um, I think the one you, you brought up with, uh, uh, defund the police too was on there, which was, I think was a very clear, very relevant, mm-hmm. uh, and, and timely. Yeah. But, yeah, that can easily be, you can use a moat and Bailey tactic with defund the police really easily. Mm-hmm. So you can say defund the police and either mean divert some of the funding to the police to other things to do the job that the police would no longer be doing. Mm-hmm. Or you can say abolish the police department altogether. Yeah, And a lot of people do sort of say, you know, if you attack them or, or question them about this, it's like, no, I just mean this. And then 
they will turn around and say, I, I want the whole police department abolished. Mm-hmm. Could you, do you really, that's crazy. Do you really want, oh, I just mean this. So you kind of switch between the two, depending on what is working for you in the situation. Yeah. I feel like I hear that one a lot right now. And yeah. I try to get clarification on what people mean by that. And it always goes back to like, oh, you know, policemen are meant to be social workers. It's like, okay, but that, that doesn't mean get rid of them. I mean, there's still crime and, <laughs> you know, people are doing that. Someone things. said that to you. Policemen are meant to be social workers. Are not meant to be social workers. Okay. Right. Yeah, so it's like, that's why we need to, it's, it, to me, it just seems like, okay, well, why don't we just, uh, fund some social workers <laughs> in that area? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Anyways, but that gets into more of the political <laughs> complex. I want to, res- I want to say, like, I want to respond to that statement, but I don't know if I want to wade into those waters. Oh yeah. <laughs> What's well, <it's, laughs> uh, yeah. well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is like an archetypal view of police officers, which have a social worker aspect to them. You know, you, you have mm-hmm. the, the kindly, friendly, helpful police officer standing on the corner mm-hmm. who's willing to engage the community in whatever trouble or problems may come up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is kind of a social worker position. Yeah. You even see that. I mean, again, this is a little bit controversial, but if you go to the body cam footage of Floyd is like, they were talking to him and saying, Hey man, all right, let's kind of move in this direction. Hey, mm-hmm. okay. You're having trouble here. You know, it's like, again, that we're not going to hurt you. We're going to help you. We're not going to hurt you. We're going to help you. And then it kind of went south and, yeah. you know, obviously the, the knee on the neck was not okay. And, you know, it's like, but you do, you do have that aspect of officers that do provide that sort of mm-hmm. social work, but they're also not going to talk about your childhood and, <laughs> right. you know, it's like they're not psychologists I mean, or therapists, you know, yeah. and, you know, maybe we're trying to figure out if we're getting into a Moat and Bailey here, but yeah, I mean, I don't see, that's think that's good. See, I, see, we, we do it too. So I think it's good to be able to like catch ourselves. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I mean, cause I, I do at some level agree with the statement that police officers should not be social workers. Mm-hmm. Like specifically. Yeah. I think that they need to be, they need to have an aspect of them, which are that mm. they should not also just be tactical, um, you know, we talked about, I think a couple episodes back about the state having the monopoly on violence. Mm-hmm. They should not be tactical, only solving violent situations either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they have a more uh, purpose than that. So the line is not very clear. Well, I think that's why you have all those divisions within police departments too. It's like you have your local cop beat, you know? Yeah. And that person is True. usually doing that neighborhood and somewhat understands and knows what's happening in that neighborhood. Should. And that should at least. Yeah. yeah but you have your detectives, mm-hmm. you have your anti-crime units, mm-hmm. SWAT team, mm-hmm. border patrol. Mm-hmm. That's true. So there's kind of focusing on different parts and, you know, they're, they should be anyways, you know, educated and trained in, in those specific areas. Like right. border patrols, you know, uh, run into certain problems that are certain situations that you wouldn't in a normal, um, you know, city beat or whatever you call it, you know? Yeah. Um, although there's a lot of overlap, but, uh, obviously if you're on the Mexican border, you need to know Spanish, you know, right? Totally. <laughs> like there's some things like that, you know? Um, but I did love that when you said that, uh, uh, be careful that we don't do the Moten Bailey also. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's really easy to do. It is. I, it really yeah. is. So it's like, I, I understand that why 
why that would be easy to fall into. Yeah, I don't think it's always necessarily, it, it can certainly be used as, as a sort of um, sinister, manipulative tactic, yeah. tactic, but I don't think that it is necessarily always that way or even generally mm-hmm. that way. I think people stumble into them all the time. Yeah. They're trying to work out what they think about things, mm-hmm. um, and they end up doing this. Yeah, and you know, I, maybe there's a place, a, t- a time and a place for that, and you should do that. I mean, maybe this mm-hmm. is a, a normal part of working out what you think, but being aware of that as you're doing it, mm-hmm. I think is is a, a really good and important thing. Oh, too. definitely. I mean, yeah. it's like it's like if I were to come to you and say, "Hey, Matt, we need to abolish the police," and you'd be like, "Uh, what do you mean by that?" You mm-hmm. know, and then you start talking through the the nuances of what that statement means. So do you leave, you know, high crime areas without police or less police? You know, it's like, where, where, what are you going to do for those areas? You're like, Oh, well maybe just, uh, <laughs> you know, take away their SWAT team or something like that. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> you start kind of like backing back into more of like a reasonable statement of maybe what you mean by defund the police or mm-hmm. something like that. But then, some of the rhetoric is is just that is all the way just get rid of them right we'll have the suburbs but we talked about that in the other one <laughs> the last podcast did we talk about that i think so yeah okay. or one of them time is moving so strangely these days like last <laughs> week feels like a month ago mm-hmm. and I, I don't have a great memory of what we talked about yeah totally well i just listened i went back and listened to the last three episodes and i hadn't listened to them in a long time so uh I think I got a little bit of a fresher on them. Good. I enjoyed them. Nice. <laughs> if this is your first time, you should listen to our episodes. Pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I really want to talk about critical race theory. Yeah. I don't, I feel like we're fairly close to the end of this episode. I don't know how, that I want to get into it. And I also mm-hmm. feel like I want to prepare a little bit for it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important to talk about it and to understand what's going on with it because mm-hmm. it, it can be, one of these Moat and Bailey situations mm-hmm. um, and realizing what it is, because I think that critical race theory is the moat. Mm-hmm. It's the difficult to defend controversial position. And there is a Bailey associated with it that is often retreated to, mm-hmm. but they are very different. What would you say that Bailey is in that? Or can you point to, the, to that right now? The critical, critical race theory. Okay. That there is injustice in the world? Sure. Um, Or we just, critical race theory wants to, actually, let me rephrase. Um, So you could say we want to have a conversation about um, race and how it affects our lives in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Okay, that seems innocuous enough. Um, But I think that you quickly get into critical race theory land, which is something completely different. And you can easily Mm. disguise it under that other previous explanation. Oh no, we're just talking about race. Mm -hmm. We're just just having a conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something much more, much different going on there. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I think we'll save it. It's like whenever you start. Yeah. Let's just do that. I think that's, yeah, I think I'd like to have a little bit more prepared because I was looking at critical theory. The first part of this, where a lot of these, um, a lot of these kind of came from and stuff, and like the is ought problem, which is like, uh, 
these are things y'all can look up to is um, foundational theory. Traditional. Traditional theory, yeah. yeah, which is focusing on more what things are or mm-hmm. are and how they work and how they uh, affect the world. And then you have the, the, the critical theory, which focuses more on what things ought to be. And then you criticize or critique things based on what ought to be. Right. Um, so that's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting distinction between the is ought problem. So, yeah. Just even opening that up, I was just like, Oh, I need to have that. I have it all written out, but all my technology is taken. It's kind of hard to, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of hard to keep it. How do I say it? Like under your thumb, like mm-hmm. what all of this is. Yeah. It's slippery. It is really slippery. But I do like the the way that you put that, the is-ought problem. Mm-hmm. The difference between looking at the world and trying to understand why it is the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And imagining the way that the world, the way that you want it to be. And then criticizing the world for not being that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. so James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose uh, wrote a book called Cynical Theories. So and the, the title <laughs> is uh, Critical Theories with Critical Theories crossed out and then cynical wrote over, over the top. And I think that that's um, just a very simple and true observation that mm-hmm. critical theory is very cynical by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's worth pointing out that critical theory in and of itself, as we've defined it is not necessarily a bad thing. I think yeah. that there is a place for it in the world. Exactly. Um, but it goes very quickly awry mm-hmm. when used alone. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think we might have talked about this on the podcast before, but I think critical theory was originally intended for by whoever sort of invented it to be used alongside traditional theory. Mm-hmm. And that sort of makes sense. I mean, it's it's one thing to look just at sort of at what things are and have been and try to understand how and why. But you know, we talk about this a lot. You need a vision. Mm-hmm. You need to understand the way that things might be or yeah. ought to be and to sort of invoke... Victor Frankl, mental health is predicated on living in the tension between what is and what could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is definitely precedent for the idea of critical theory. Mm-hmm. But when you move completely into the land of critical theory, yeah. the rails really come off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I, uh, well said. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Well, it is because it's, it's, it's really fascinating because you do need to, to think about what, ought, what can be or what ought to be, but it has to be measured by what you observe, how the world is. Yes. And that's, and that's a, that's a healthy balance, you know, and if, and if you just, if you accept the world as it is, <clears throat> then there's no, there's no real progress, you know, it's like, oh, right. True. You're an animal. That's all you'll ever be. And so you are, you know, it's, you might just take it from an animal, animal point of view or something. Well, like that. it just reminds me of what you were telling me about seeing some post that somebody made about basically like, here's the story of this thing that happened mm-hmm. and don't go look it up. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was interesting. And it didn't surprise me that someone would say that. Yeah. Um, I, I think you were saying it was specifically about the Jacob Blake, uh, thing uh yeah, it's in, Jacob Blake thing. Yeah. Uh, Kenosha. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that is specifically saying, don't go look at the world and try to understand why it is the way that it is. Only listen to the way that things should be. Mm -hmm. And if things aren't exactly the way that they should be, 
then there's problems. Yeah. So, and we need to tear that system down. That's not the way it should be. Anything that is there mm-hmm. needs to be torn down yeah. and, and, and abolished. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the defund the police thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even just democracy or the mm-hmm. patriarchy or whatever it might be that is wanting to be torn down, but not understanding why it's there mm-hmm. or what it, what its usefulness has been in the past. Yeah. And not that it can't be reformed or transformed, you know, which is then you start seeing like you start getting into more of the critical and what ought to be, you know, but understanding why it's there and what use, what its usefulness has been in the past. Right. That's the thing is like, we should uh, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about the impossibility of moving into what ought to be. If you don't know what, is there currently Mm, very true. I mean, you can't, and this is, I think why what is happening ideologically right now is so maddening because Mm. it can't go anywhere. It can never move toward any improvement or conclusion for this reason, because it refuses to look at what's here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it reminds me of uh, Chesterton's fence. Mm -mm. So I think GK Chesterton said, basically, if you come across a fence, you're not allowed to take it down unless you can tell me what it's for. Oh, nice. What it was put up for. Mm-hmm. Well, that just makes me think of like the 1619 project and like tr- reinterpreting all the things that have happened in the U S you know, mm-hmm. and not really understanding the history of the world, <laughs> you know, and, and our, the yeah. progression to, up to what happened in 1776, you know, it's like, or even to the abolish of slavery, you know, it's like, it's like 1856, you know, it's like the civil war, you know, if you don't understand art, that trajectory of things, it's like, you can, you can look at it through the eyes of, um, as if the, the U S has been an established on racist and, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, racist policies, ah, lost the word. White supremacy. Yeah, white is found on white supremacy and wants to continue to mm-hmm. uh, um, push that into the future. You know, it's yeah. like, um, but just to understand like what what the people were get, were struggling with and walking through in those in those early times. Also, just the enlightenment and you know all the things that we've sort of uh, um, accomplished throughout time. You know, it's mm-hmm. like. I'm kind of losing my, my, my train here, <laughs> but that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> you and I have a difficult time not going into things that we specifically say we shouldn't go into. <laughs> I was kind of catching was I was trying to like, I was trying to like curve it, but I couldn't like, I was like, oh, I can't bring it back. And I'm just going to keep going. Well, let's make a plan to, to dive a little bit deeper into this okay. next time. Um, we'll both do some reading and come a little bit better prepared. Okay. Um, and try to make some sense of it, at least as much as we can as a sort of, uh, starting place. Okay. Cause I think it's been underground, not un- underground, but the idea of critical race theory has not been super widespread until very recently. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's only going to become more widespread as a well under a common term that mm-hmm. people aren't going to know what it means. They're mm-hmm. going to assume that they know what it means, which is some combination of critical thinking and uh, race conversations, mm-hmm. which seems 
completely valid mm -hmm. and actually would be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. Critical race theory has nothing to do with critical thinking. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> let's make that distinction. So true. Yeah. Uh, All right. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, magnificent obsession. Are we going to start that? Oh, we're we did. Like that was episode 37. I know we're halfway through almost getting halfway through uh, September right now. Uh, so we'll come up with a plan. <laughs> That's what we said last time. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Um, you know, life's hard right now, guys. I know. I know. <laughs> Seriously, though. Yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> I mean, step one is a plan. And if we haven't one. done step one, then uh -huh. we still have to do step one. So yeah. <laughs> we still have to do step one. Yeah. But if you want to go ahead and read it, that's cool. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll have that next time too. Okay. Next time, next time. <laughs> next time. Okay. Um, cool. Cool. Is there anything you want to wrap up with or anything that's on your, that's a good spot. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we love you guys. And uh, we'll see you next time on the shores. Yeah. Thanks right. for listening. Ciao. Bye. Bye.